Turn your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 20. Turn to Matthew chapter 20. This is a correlative passage to our study this morning in Acts and Peter's sermon. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 28. Matthew chapter 20, I'll be reading out the New King James Version as is our custom. God's Word declares, I'm sorry, let me switch this on. There we go. It doesn't matter to him. There we are. I remember at least. Matthew 20 beginning verse 17 out of the New King James Version. God's Word declares, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, may baptize with the baptism that I am, I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Good morning. (laughs) I had to say that for those of the crowd that came in late, so I didn't get to say good morning to you earlier. We want to uh, begin again this morning uh, by tackling some scripture that has been somewhat uh, misused. And that's always a struggle, uh, because it means I have to spend some time uh, instead of teaching what God's Word says, of teaching what it's not saying. And that's just as important because of how men have mishandled God's Word. Yeah, and, but it's not as exciting, frankly, uh, for the pastor to have to deal with that because uh, we start walking down that road of evaluating everyone's handling of God's Word and it becomes a, a tangled nightmare because there are so many out there espousing so much and abusing scripture to such a degree that we could just occupy ourselves with trying to unsay things that they are saying to the point that we're never really declaring what God's word does say and so it will be a little bit today but we're going to press to try to get to the affirmative statements of what's described here 
uh, in the middle, really, of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And remember, we are asking, or sorry, we are answering the question that was asked, what does this mean? That the manifestation of the Spirit in a powerful, miraculous way did not direct men to salvation. It directed men to ask of salvation. It did not, in and of itself, the experience provide enough information for men to grasp it for what it was. They weren't able to evaluate it. They weren't able to come to right conclusions about it. And so it perplexed them. And they said, whatever could this mean? And it was necessary that with understanding and probably in a common language like Greek or perhaps Hebrew, that God's word was declared that day. And we have so much made of the gift of, of the Spirit coming and was so much made of the, of the sound from heaven, of the divided tongues and of the speaking in tongues that we lose track of, I think, one well, of the critical statements and that is, whatever does this mean? At the end of that experience, there was not a wholesale repentance of the people. There was only perplexity. It wasn't until God's word was preached in a way of understanding that people responded and they were cut to the heart and said, oh, what should we do? And this is what your job and my job is. It is to get people, first of all, to come to the question, what does this mean? I look at your life, I see things I don't understand. Um, You live differently. What does this mean? And then we give them the gospel so that at the end of that, they are asking a different question. What shall I do? What shall I do? I recognize my need, and now what shall I do? And that's going to be really next week's sermon. Tucked in between there, we, want, we have already started last week looking at the first half of Peter's sermon, where he again is moving them from a knowledge that they needed to receive to the actions they needed to take. And so he is moving them in his sermon from whatever does this mean to what shall we do? That is his intention, and... The Spirit works through him very powerfully to do that. But we're going to come into a section of Scripture, again, uh, in the midst of him declaring what God is going to do, or has done, and desires to do, and what its purpose is. What does it all mean? Not just the giving of the Holy Spirit, but the whole life of Christ, the death, burial, resurrection. What does it all mean? And what shall we do about it? In the middle of this comes a statement that we want to address because of its abuse by some groups that would make it sound as though Peter really didn't want to call anybody to do anything except for unless except unless God was going to force them to do it. And we are going to counter that very strongly and adamantly this morning 
before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a very powerful message that explains what you're doing, the meaning of life and of your revelation and of your Son, Jesus Christ, and of faith in general. Lord, we also thank you for a message that directs us in what we should do about it. And Lord, our prayer is that we might be actively engaged in both of those arenas of thought and and meditation uh, and also of action, of our will, our hearts to be bent toward you. Lord, we need your help in this this morning. We pray that your spirit might direct, as you have promised to those who ask of you wisdom, that you will provide it. We might have the wisdom to look into your word, see its truth, apply it to our lives, and impact our world for your name's sake. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, we have gone through and we have seen the introduction, really, in the, in the beginning of Peter's message. We come to uh, verse 22, and again we have uh, him readdressing his audience. And we're going to talk about his audience later on and why it was so limited uh, when we find uh, a problem starting to uh, come forward. It's not a problem yet um, because they are fulfilling God's commands, uh, but they're going to kind of stall out in that. And they're going to be uh, found, men of Israel, men of Israel, men of Israel. We're going to find them meeting in the temple, in the temple, in the temple. Uh, and we don't ever find them leaving. And that's a problem because, remember, Acts 1.8, they're supposed to go Jerusalem, yes, Judea, yes, and Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. And so um, God's going to have to force them into compliance with that at first. They're going to get the picture later on in Acts, and they're going to do it by their own interests and by the direction of the Holy Spirit, but it's actually going to be moved by other characters outside of the church they're going to force the issue of expansion of the message beyond just men of Israel. But for now, Peter is putting his attention where it is called to be put on on this first day of the church. And here we have men of Israel in verse 22. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. And again, we talked about that last week, about understanding that they have a knowledge of who he is, they had that experience, but it did not necessitate their repentance. They didn't always respond, they didn't always understand, who is this man? What does it mean to be the Son of God? Uh, What was his purpose and intent? And this Peter is going to now answer. You know the man. You know that he performed miracles, wonders, and signs. Um, many people thought that made him a great prophet and were comparing him to the likes of Moses. But he was one greater than Moses. So they knew that information, but they hadn't always comprehended uh, who this man really was. They enjoyed the miracles. And at occasions we see great statements of faith referring to the authority of Jesus Christ, referring to his deity, 
that he would accept worship. We see some, some glimmers of hope in the Gospels that men understand somewhat of who Jesus is, but by and large, even the disciples themselves didn't really grasp why he had come. They had an idea of a kingdom, but again, it was very limited in their uh, scope of just a earthly Israelite nation like what David and Solomon had. They did not understand the breadth and depth and extent of God's plan. And this we saw in our reading in Matthew chapter 20, and we could have easily gone to several others, where uh, Jesus Christ declares that this is what's going to happen. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute, um, how he can do that and, and not cause that. But we find that he makes that declaration that we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be tried, I'm going to be killed, I'm going to rise again. And that's not the first time he shared that. In fact, on that occasion in Matthew 20, that's the third time he has made that direct, clear declaration to them that of what's going to happen. Here's the future. Here I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Uh, he doesn't declare who the betrayer is. Yeah, he, he doesn't tell what time. But now, by the time Matthew 20 says, we're going to Jerusalem right now, and I'm not coming back from there. And the response was wrong, wasn't it? We read the response this morning. What was the response? The two sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, sons of thunder, uh, their mom comes up and says, can I, sons, be your right hand, left hand, when you enter into your kingdom? They are still got their brain tied to their dreams, their purposes, their ambitions, instead of God's purposes. What is God's ambitions? What is in Christ Jesus? What, what does he expect? What is he trying to accomplish in this uh, God-man, Jesus Christ? And they're going to fight over who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Christ tries to get them to think differently by saying, you don't understand the cup I'm going to be drinking there. You don't understand the baptism I'm going to be baptized with there. You haven't listened. There's a dullness to their thinking, a dullness to their ears, that they don't process it at all, that, that Jesus Christ just told them what's going to happen in the days to come, and they just don't get it. And even after correcting them about that and them saying, yeah, I could do that. We're going to go, we'll go through thick or thin with you. <laughs> Although they ran away and denied him. Not just Peter, but all of them. Ran away and hid. Uh, were afraid and, and until this day. We find that uh, Christ, even after correcting all of that, then again declares to them, uh, and I want to read that last little statement there in Matthew 20 again. declares to them once again, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, I don't know how much clear that can be, as a ransom for many. I'm going to be paying a price. I'm going to be going to Jerusalem to pay a price for you, to pay a ransom for you, because of your sin, to deliver you from it. And so we we see the dullness that's there. And so when Peter comes to the men of Israel and says, well, you know the historical figure and you know the activity that he was engaged in, the miracles, but you never 
understood its purpose. And I know you didn't get it because we didn't get it. <laughs> Peter himself didn't understand it. And he was in the inner 12, the inner three. And he's like, uh, well, this is the guy that you know about. But you really don't know why. And I want to share that with you. And this, I think, is an important transitional idea where we go from information, whatever does this mean, to what shall I do? Is to go the information from the information about who Jesus is, which our world desperately needs, to understand why. Why Jesus? Why did he come? Not just that he come, and, and, and that's why I can go through and, and look at the evidences of the historicity, I knew I was going to have a problem with that word, historicity of Jesus Christ, and I can present that to people and try to convince them he's a real person, this really happened, the resurrection really occurred, uh, we have lots of evidence for that, and we can logically bring that proof to people, um, but there still has to be the transition that's really still not enough. We need to bring them to understanding the why. Why was that necessary to happen? Why did it have to go down the way it went down? And this brings us to verse 23. So, he ends verse 22. You yourselves already know all this. You've already experienced his miracles. Some of you out here in this audience were some of those who were healed by him, delivered by him. So what? This guy, verse 23, this Jesus of Nazareth, this man that, that did all these miracles, wonders, and signs, who taught you, who had this huge following, him, this guy. Now we get into the purpose. Being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it is not possible that he should be held by it. And we begin to be introduced to the purpose that God had in all of this. That this was not some random guy that showed up and had this quirky ability to heal people and had this sagacious way about him that, that uh, just uh, and this, uh, this charisma that produced a following. That was not what was going on here. This was something that had eternal purpose behind it. This is something that had uh, a design to it and that God had, had developed and, and is the culmination of thousands of years of God's redemptive work. This is the pinnacle of it. It brings us to the why. Why did he come? He came... To die, you killed him. We're going to talk about responsibility there in just a moment. Whom God raised up, again, what for? To release us from the pains of death. That he could gain victory over death, and he could do it in a manner uh, as, a, as kind of a surrogate for us, that he could conquer death for us. That he could do that. Because of who he was, uh, and he's going to go in and describe him as Lord, and he's going to use some of the same passages that, that Christ himself used with the Pharisees 
um, with the Davidic passage. We, we talked about that a little bit last week. And so he's going to describe this one as Jesus of Nazareth, man, but also Lord, that he is God. By that means, when he conquers death, he is able to now conquer death for all men. This was God's purpose. This was God's plan. This was the whole buildup of, of all the Old Testament, of all the prophets, of, of all the law. This is the culmination of his all was to come into this one God-man, Jesus Christ, who would be the deliverer for all men for all time, the one and only, the unique Savior of the earth. And this was what it was all about, was to loosen the pains of death. He couldn't be held by it because he couldn't be held by it now. By trusting in him, you can be delivered from it. That death can't hold you. It has no power over you. It has no force over you. That you are the conquerors, and the Bible goes on to call you hyper-conquerors, super-conquerors, or as that's translated in English, more than conquerors. And we find that, that we can have an opportunity to share in that. And so in the transition from Jesus of Nazareth, here's your experience, to Jesus the Lord, who is your deliverer, um, comes this idea that this is the culmination of the purposes of God through the ages. And sadly, we have taken this very precious passage of Scripture that, that brings us this way of getting people from knowledge to directive um, and we made it say the exact opposite of what it does say and that's why i have to address it because if the other uh those others that are teaching this verse their way are true then the rest of this sermon is pointless in fact the whole sermon has no value because if their teaching of verse 23 is correct, then there is no effort ever to be put to bringing men to ask the question, what must I do? That's the fact. And that's what is at issue here. Is are we to bring men to the point of asking the question, what must I do? Or is it already decided from eternity past and therefore the pressure's off me? And there is no middle ground here. They want to, many pseudo uh, ones who teach this want to say there's a middle ground, but there isn't. Not honestly. So let's consider this. He uses some very. Direct words that people like to pick up on the word in English there, and they want to say, well, here it is. Verse 23 starts off, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. And this is the phrase that they want to take and run with to the end of the world. Because they see some things determined purpose in foreknowledge of God. That this was all Every iota, every every infinitesimal specific detail of this was something that God had set in concrete before the creation of the world that it was determined 
that it was going to happen the way it happened and that there was no variation possible. There was no, uh, (laughs) that there were, that it was going to overwhelm human will and directive that, that none of that had any humanity punched on it. There was no, uh, fingerprint of humanity on there. It was all God. They take this phrase completely out of context, like ignoring the, the, content, the, the content of the phrase as well as the context. And so we're going to begin by looking at the content, and then we're going to go to the context. I usually do it the other way around. But I think the content is just so important here, and it's obvious to me. First of all, determined purpose and foreknowledge is connected directly to the purpose of God in sending Jesus Christ. His determined purpose was to deliver us. And this has been so since the earliest prophecies all the way back in the Garden of Eden. That God had determined He would deliver man out of his sin. That is a determined purpose. The specifics of the way that that was going to happen, again, the text tells us it was built on foreknowledge. And here we have a problem. Because in our society, and and, and Christians are some of the worst the biggest problem. They're the worst advocates of this, and they and they develop something that once the world catches that and understands that, and I've encountered a few that have that really understand uh, what has come to be known as the Calvinist position. Uh, they've come to know understand that, and they throw their arms up and says, "Then what's the point?" And that's exactly the correct response. It really is, because we have taught foreknowledge means foredetermination. Which it doesn't mean. And then others uh, have to, and this is, you're not going to hardly believe this, but you will. Um, others have taken foreknowledge and taken the word known and taken that idea of being known instead of a knowledge about, to have intimacy with, going back to Adam knew his wife and saying that God foreloved some and not others and foreinimized with them so that they would be saved. This is the level of manipulation that's going into God's word to avoid what it actually, plainly says. It says that God had a purpose, and that was to deliver man from death. He looked down in history, before it was history, prehistory? Ah, prehistory? It can't be prehistory, it'd be prehistory. Anyway, he looked down in the future, saw it, this is how it's going to go down. He, in his foreknowledge, and foreknowledge does not make something, uh, is not equal to causation. It does not mean that he caused that because he foresaw that. But he could see the choices men would make. He would see that it was Judas that would betray him, the son. He, he would see the, the, the choices that uh, would, would lead to every individual's involvement in this. To such a degree, to such intimacy could he know that that he could give prophetic utterances to the very main 
to, to the very specific ways of Christ's death, to the specific ways of his, of his betrayal, to every facet of this event that all history was building towards, God knew it. That does not mean God made it that way. For knowledge does not equal causation. Just because I know something will happen doesn't mean I'm causing it to happen. I knew the sun was going to come up today. Does any of you believe that I caused the sun to come up today? Because I knew it was going to. Did you know it was going to? Did you cause it? And yet we have confuse these two when I encounter people in their argumentation, they go, well, if, if God knows what's going to happen, then it's going to happen and, and it's determined. No. It's, he's not causing any of it to happen. Foreknowledge does not equal cause. Why is that so important, Pastor? Because if he's causing everything to happen, then no man is responsible for anything that happens. And once men aren't responsible, then you walk into a very dark place that says, Kesara, Sarah, whatever it will be, will be. God's already determined it. And what I choose, good or bad, is God's cause. So if I choose to go out there and sin like the devil, it's God's fault. Now, when I was a kid, we had a little thing going around, the devil made me do it. Well, now, what I'm hearing more often is Jesus made me do it. Because we take verses like this and twist them. And this is the same in Romans 8, another passage that says, foreknowledge, foreknowledge, foreknowledge. And we insert in there, foreordination. That God has ordained every single thing before it ever happened to happen. That he's making it happen. And there's a big difference between knowing what will happen and making it happen. Oh, please understand that. That the foreknowledge of God is part of his omniscience. That he has this knowledge of that. But that he will uh, not cause any of that because God cannot cause sin. He cannot cause evil. For it is against his very nature. And and they are so concerned about, about possibly violating his sovereignty that they destroy his holiness in the midst of it. Just obliterate it right out of his character. God had a purpose. And he declares that purpose in his, in his word, and God doesn't lie. His purpose was that all men everywhere would come to repentance. That is his eternal purpose from eternity past, from the, before he created even, but as soon as Adam and Eve ate that fruit and he declared this prophetic statement that this, this seed of a woman, weird phrase, um, is going to crush Satan's head. He declared his purpose. I am going to deliver men from the death that they brought on themselves by their own sin. I am going to do it. That is his determined purposes. 
And this Jesus keeps talking about. He says, I have come to die. I have come to, to, to suffer. I've come to be baptized with this baptism, to drink this cup. This is my purpose. But then he also says, whoa, to the guy who makes it happen. Just because this is why I have come doesn't mean that this is me causing you to do these things. God's purposes are going to be completed in history. And we find actually the the rarity of his his personal engagement is really the... the, uh, proves the rule that normally he doesn't but when he does god's word makes it very evident that that it wants to describe that activity of god when he comes in and and actively uh hardens someone's heart or something along that line um it's spoken of because of its rarity he does that for the benefit of the saints for the benefit of the deliverance for the benefit of man never to our detriment. And so we find that deli- he was delivered by the term purpose of God. It was, he was sent to die at the hands of the ones he loved and was dying for. That was his coming. And that's why even Peter himself, when talking to Jesus, says, Lord, don't talk like that. You know, that's, that's not going to gain a big following. And, God, and Jesus just turns to him and says, Get behind me, Satan. That's satanic talk. Because you're trying to thwart the very reason I came. So the determined purpose of God is not um, dictating every single decision you make in life. That is not what is ever talked about every time that this is referred to in Scripture. Never does it refer to your personal decisions in life. Never. It is always about, first of all, God's general work that he has purposes throughout history are going to be for deliverance. Of his specific work for the believers, that his purposes is that he will work all things together for your good. That he is always working to your benefit. That he is engaged in this world, but specifically for those who trust him and follow him. He's a responsive God. You've heard me say that many, many, many times. His purposes are, if you will, then I will. It's not, I will make you do this so I can do this for you. It's a conditional clause. If, if you will, then I will. And these are the purposes of God. These are the principles that he operates by. And once he declares those principles, he must abide by them. They're self-constraining. And so, the determined purposes of God are to save us. And that meant his son had to die to pay a ransom, to pay a price for us. But woe to Judas, woe to, to Pilate, woe to these men that were engaged in the activity of killing our Lord. And woe to the mob that said, Crucify him! Crucify him! Woe to them for choosing that side of the event. And this 
is what Peter brings out. Again, let's go back to our context now a little bit. What does it say? The very next part outside of the phrase everybody wants to jump on, verse 23, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Who put Jesus to death? Well, it wasn't God. Was it? It was God's purpose to send Jesus to die for us. Yes, in the larger context, that was his purpose. And Jesus understood that throughout his life. That, and that's why he could say, my time hasn't come yet. You know, we're not this. And so he'd walk away. He could deliver himself from any crowd, any time. They wanted to kill him a lot earlier than he was actually killed. Would you agree with that? But it wasn't his time yet. And he understood his purpose, but his purpose was to to bring these disciples into this intimate relationship with him over these three years, to perform the miracles, to give the teaching, and at a specific time, specifically with regard to the Passover. It had to happen in this period of time because redemptive history has pointed to it. Passover, Passover, Passover. When God will pass over my sin by the blood of an innocent one. It had to happen at just the right time. Because of the purposes of God. But, Peter says, you did it. You did this. You took him. With lawless hands, that is against all uh, righteousness. You've taken my lawless hands as a, you did it uh, during a week that you shouldn't have even been meeting. You did it at night. You did this thing. You stood there before Pilate and screamed, crucify him, give us Barabbas. You did that. You're responsible for this. This is your act of lawlessness against the Son of God. Just because the general purpose of God was that he die doesn't make us guiltless for putting him to death. You're still guilty. You took him. You killed him. You did it in a lawless way. You put him to death. But God raised him up. So who does what? God did not kill Jesus. He did not. He determined that one would have to die to cover the sins and he gave his son And then he just allowed men to do what they did. In fact, if anything, he held them back from doing what they wanted to do. Because they wanted to do it a lot earlier. And God held them back from doing it until just the right time. And then it's almost like God stepped back and says, okay, do your will. Do your will. Do your will. The crucifixion of Christ, all it took for it to happen was for God to step back and let man do what man does. And men are greatest murder and killing. We're just good at it. We can find every excuse to do it. Call it war, call it justice, call it whatever. We're good at it. So all God had to do was back up and let the will of man overcome. And here's the the crowd that said Hosanna to the king a few days earlier is going to yell out crucify him by simply God stepping one step back and saying do your will. If you don't think this is true, you need to read your Bible a little more clearly. Um, He did that to Hezekiah once. I'm just going to step back, and let's just see what Hezekiah does without me. And God kind of leans on the wall, says, let's just see what he does. And Hezekiah does foolishly. This is a godly good king. 
who does an act of foolishness and, and gets himself into trouble. And, and, but specifically says that God says, I'm just going to step away and just see what Hezekiah does. All that was required for Christ, for the Christ to die was for God to just step away and let men do their will. If you think it would have been any different today, you're wrong. So, it wasn't God's purpose. God did not determine each and every decision made that led to the death of Christ. Rather, his purpose was that Christ would die. And all that was required for that to happen was for him to step back a little bit. And I believe the full understanding of Christ's statement on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is more than just the darkness of his turning away because he became sin, but the whole idea that he left him, he left his son in the hands of men to do their will, and we did our will. We did our will, not God's. And again, Peter's going to repeat this kind of statement over and over again. <laughs> you killed him, God raised him up. Well, let's just read through this. It's, it's verse 30, we'll pick up. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had shown with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this. Do you see what prophecy is built on? Foresight. Not foreordination. Foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. And so the prophet David foresaw something. Did David cause it? No, David foresaw it. That the Holy One would be crucified. And so he speaks to it about hanging on a tree. In verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. This Jesus, jump down to verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So you crucified him, he's coming up again again. You did this, you did this, you did this. Here's what God did. God rose, raised him from the dead. God made him Lord. God raised him to this throne. He is exalted today by God's hand. He is now Lord and Christ. And this was God's activity. And let us stop blaming God for his non-activity when he constrains himself to give us the liberty to make our own will happen. It was the will of man to slaughter the Savior in the manner and the time that it happened. It was the purposes of God that Jesus die for our sin. And he foresaw how that death would happen. He foresaw it, did not forecause it. And it's a critically important understanding, or else all evangelism is, evangelism is over. 
There's no reason to share Christ with anyone because the only ones that can get saved are the ones that Jesus saves first. Because he's got to change their heart so that then they can believe. And if they already changed their heart into a, and the new creation has to happen, the renewing of the mind has to happen before they believe, then what's our point? What's the purpose of preaching? Because we can never possibly bring anyone to ask this question that comes up in the very next verse of Peter's sermon. And that at the end of Peter's sermon, they, they didn't even let him finish, by the way. <laughs> they interrupt him. They were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? There is no point ever getting anyone to that point. There's no ambition there. If foreknowledge and the purposes of God are what others declare them to be which are very foreign to the way God declares them to be. This is critical. Or I wouldn't waste my time with you this morning to address it. But so many have taken so many pieces of Scripture and, and woven this together, a doctrine that lays sin at God's doorstep. That brings evil and lays it at God and says it's your fault. You did it. God didn't do it. Nor would he tempt anyone to do it. We did it. With lawless hands. We exerted our will. And all it takes for that to happen is for God to allow us. And he has done so. In making us in his image, he has given us the authority to exercise an independent will. Any other position, I will adamantly say, any other position clearly lays sin on God in response in the area of responsibility. And as much as they deny that that's true, the fact is it must be true. And I will not tolerate any position that tarnishes the holiness of God in that kind of a fashion. Our God lives in light where there is no darkness at all. There is no evil in his countenance. His desire, his purposes are to deliver, not to destroy. He judges because we choose to reject him. And the demands of his righteousness must be met. They're either met by his son Jesus Christ or they'll be met by eternal suffering in your flesh. You choose but you must choose. And no choice is also a choice. Oh, that we would rediscover the necessity in our evangelism of bringing people to the question, what shall I do? But we have lost the urgency of bringing them to that because we have swallowed so much of this error that says that, well, if God wants them saved, He can do it without you or me. No, He can not. And yes, I use the word ability. He doesn't have the ability to do so. Why? Because He said He didn't. God wants all men to be saved. Apparently, the fact that all men aren't saved means that He can't do what He wants. Because He has established 
principles and he has given a wondrous thing to us and that is his image. And I believe that the entire question is resolved when we understand what it means to be in the image of God, that God placed something upon mankind that put us in a state of independence unlike anything else in creation, including angels. And that meant that God couldn't save everyone. But only those who would let him save them. He wants to save everyone. That was his purpose. He sent Christ to die for the world. The Bible clearly says that. That he loved the world, everyone in it. Jew, Gentile, male, female, it didn't matter. God loved them and died for them to give them eternal life. That they might be delivered from just condemnation that they have earned by their own choices and be delivered from the pain of death to inherit eternal life. If Peter meant in verse 23 what other people try to say he is describing, then never would he ever come to the statement in verse 38 of repent. He would just say, well, accept your place in God's kingdom as one of his children. Because you can't do anything. God has to do it. We are not determinists. What does that mean? That means that you have a choice. And while God knows what your choice will be, has not determined it, that it must be that way. He's made it yours. When I get done preaching, the building will empty out. And certainly by 12.30, 1 o'clock, the lights will be off and you'll all be out of here. I'm not going to physically lift and push you all out to cause that to happen. But that's what's going to happen. Because that's what happens every Sunday, right? Now watch. One of you is just going to stay here and sit here just to prove me wrong. <laughs> I'm staying here until pastor pushes me out. Do not confuse foreknowledge with foreordination, with causation. And never, ever acknowledge any kind of doctrine that in any slightest way lays sin on the shoulders of our Savior as responsible for it. He carried our sin because he chose to in love for us. Not because he had to, because it was his fault. When we come to these kind of verses, and there's a couple of them in the book of Acts, I am compelled to deal with it because it is, it is a disease that has run rampant in churches today, in Baptist churches. My Baptist friends, pastors, are captivated by it. And it's doing damage. And the place that it does the most damage is that we can't honestly stand up and preach a sermon like Peter just preached. 
and call men and 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 goad men into asking the question, what shall I do? But brethren, that is our job. It's not only answer the question, what does this mean? But to goad men into the question, what shall I do? That is part of your evangelism. Because God wants all men to be saved. But they must accept it. They have a will. And we must touch that will and seek to engage it, to bring them to the point that that these men were brought to by Peter over and over and over and over again saying, you did this evil, you lawless ones. God did good. We must confront people with that. You're doing evil. God's done good. Holy Spirit will convict the world. It says not just the elect. He'll convict the world. Why? That some might be saved. Some might come to the point of saying, what shall I do? What shall I do? Peter didn't start his sermon off with repentance, but he sure ended it with it. He started off, I'm going to tell you what's going on. I'm going to explain some things. I'm going to use the Old Testament. I'm going to answer your question, what does this mean? But I'm going to also transition you into understanding a question that you'd never ask, and that is, what's God doing? What's his purpose? I'm going to tell you what the purpose of God is so that then you can be confronted with the fact that you are against that purpose, but you don't have to stay that way so that maybe you'll come up with a question that you need to ask next, and that is, what shall I do? This is your ambition, your goal. In your long-term and short-term, it doesn't matter whether those of you are in your family, you've known all your life, or those that you've just met on the street. This is your ambition, to bring them. Answering the question, give them a reason to ask you a question, what does this mean? And draw them to ask the question, what shall I do? Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a powerful message by Peter. And and Lord, we uh, are dismayed at some who would take a central portion of this and turn it on you. Make this all somehow your fault or your expression of love that you choose only to save a handful when you could save so many. All. Lord, guard us from such thinking, such error, such sin. We might recognize that you are always working toward our good. It is your desire to deliver, to save, to redeem. And you have demonstrated your commitment to that by the sending of your Son to be our ransom. And we can't help but thank you, Lord. And then to recognize before you that we do sin. It is our own choice. We are fully responsible. 
And so we come before you as Peter declared to the men there to repent. As John spoke to the believers to confess. That we might surrender our will to yours. Help us in this every day. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.